Let us pray. Almighty and most gracious Father, we thank you for your word, both the word that is named Jesus and the word you have given us through him by the Spirit. For through this written word, you come to us. Through this written word, you give us the Spirit, and by giving us the Spirit, you give us Jesus. And so renew us, make us to know you more deeply, guide us to love you more properly, and enable us to serve you in all that we do as we go forth from this place. Be ever more present to us, and let us know and believe that your name has been placed upon us, that we might be saved. We ask this all through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Like I said at the beginning of our service, with this coming of January 1st, it is New Year's Day for the world. It's an old tradition going all the way back to Roman times that January 1st is the beginning of the new solar year. And so all the world celebrates yet another year. And yet, we here in church aren't here to celebrate another year going around the sun, are we? No, there is another reason for why we gather on this day. As always, we gather to celebrate Christ. Every Sunday we are gathering to worship our Lord Jesus, to celebrate his work of redemption for us. In the traditions of the church, every Sunday is a little Easter, for it is on Sunday that Christ rose from the dead. So we gather on Sunday to celebrate the resurrection of Christ, for that resurrection brings about the completion of salvation through his death. But also during this church season of Christmas, not only are we celebrating the resurrection of Christ, we are celebrating his very birth into this world. It is the first Sunday of Christmas after all. Last Sunday was Christmas Day and we heard of Jesus being born for us. And so even today we cry out, for unto us a son is born, unto us a son is given. It's a glorious revelation that the son is born for us. We confess that Jesus is born and given to us men who do not deserve such grace, and yet nonetheless he is given to us for our salvation. And now, on this particular Sunday, the first Sunday of Christmas in this particular year, it's another special feast day. It is the feast that occurs on the eighth day of Christmastide. For it is the eighth day since Jesus' birth. And what happens on the eighth day for a Jewish boy in his life? On this day he is circumcised. And so this day has traditionally been known as the feast of the circumcision of our Lord Jesus Christ. However, in more recent years, in the last 40 or 50 years, it came to have a different name. With a different emphasis, it was called the Feast of the Holy Name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Putting the emphasis upon the naming of Jesus on this eighth day. And that is important for that name was commanded by the angel as Luke says in verse 21 of chapter 2. For that was the name the angel had given them before he was even conceived. But to only hear and remember the name of Jesus loses something about the events of salvation because we're ignoring something of vast importance. We forget the importance of the fact that he was circumcised. And so I think our 2019 prayer book does something good here for it brings together both of these ideas. 
And it names this day the feast of the circumcision and the holy name of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's a mouthful to say. It makes it an extremely long title for a feast day. But it brings both of those events together for they are linked intimately in Scripture. <clears throat> they go together. For on the eighth day, it was commanded by Yahweh himself to Abraham to circumcise the male child. And by the time of the first century, it had become the Jewish practice to do, to name the child on that most holy day of his circumcision. They had created that tradition. It wasn't commanded in scripture that the child must be named on the eighth day, but it became the practice that as you circumcise that child, the child's name was declared before the community. And so why do we bother to remember that Jesus was circumcised? Isn't it a strange thing to recount for the church? Isn't it just really an offhand concluding verse to the Christmas narrative in Luke? It literally is just one verse. And on the eighth day and at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus. The name given by the angel before he was even conceived in the womb. And yet in that very just seemingly offhand comment is a great amount of importance. Not only with regard to Jesus being named as the angel had commanded both Mary and Joseph, but with regard to the very covenant of Abraham himself. For where did circumcision come from? It was God's covenant signed to Abraham that all of the great promises of God would be fulfilled. So it's not an incidental detail that Jesus is circumcised. It is of great import to his very mission as the Messiah. For without circumcision, Jesus could not be the Jewish Messiah, could he? Circumcision set apart the child to be part of the Jewish community. And without it, they were not part of it. And so without it, Jesus could not be that Jewish Messiah. He could not be the fulfillment of that very Abrahamic covenant. And he could not be the savior of all the world. This may seem like a lot to take in with such a small snippet of scripture. But it is about the very mission of Christ that he was circumcised. To understand this, let's step back and recount the history of circumcision and where it came from. And that begins in the book of Genesis with chapter 12. God calls Abraham out of Ur. He calls him and his whole household away from the land of his fathers. And he promises to make him a great nation. And in that making Abram a great nation, he will bless all the families of the earth through him. Now, Abram was 75 years old when this happened. He was an old man by our standards. His wife was already 65. Sarai was not in the years of birthing children anymore. But yet God said, I will make you a great nation, which means he must at least have one son to become a great nation. And Abraham heard this promise and he believed and he left his land and began his journey toward Canaan. Now in this land, Abram and his wife and his whole household lived for many, many, many years. And he clung to the promise of God. And God again comes to him and promises him directly a son. In Genesis 15, we begin to see the fulfillment of that original promise that was given by God. And in saying, I will give you a son, you shall not appoint an heir from your servants. I will give you a promised son. God makes a covenant with Abraham in that. He 
God walks through the sacrifices that have been cut in two, saying that if this is not fulfilled, then let this punishment, let this curse of death be placed upon me if I do not give you the son that I have promised. Like I said, that's all in Genesis 15. And so we have Genesis 12, Abram going out based on God's promise. Genesis 15, God reiterating that promise and making the covenant before Abraham. But yet, Abram falters. When he's 86 years old, he takes Hagar to be his wife. And he fathers Ishmael. Ishmael is not to be the son of promise, though. He is not to be the inheritor. He is not to be the heir of Abraham that will be the one through whom the promises come. But nonetheless, there is Ishmael, a son of Abraham. And then, 13 years after the birth of Ishmael, Abraham, Abram, as he was still known, was 99 years old. For 24 years, Abram was waiting and waiting and waiting for God to fulfill this promise. He attempted to fulfill it by his own strength. And it was wrong for him to do that. And so God comes once more to him. He looks at Abram and says, You shall not be called Abram anymore. You shall be called Abraham, for you will be the father of many nations. And at that point, there in Genesis 17, God gives to Abram, Abraham the sign of circumcision. Every male in his household is to be circumcised. And when a new male is born, when a new son comes, he is to be circumcised on the eighth day. The circumcision places them in the covenant that God has made with Abraham. And so beginning with Abraham and then to his son Ishmael, and then all of his servants in his household, all the males were circumcised. And here's the thing, Abraham doesn't argue. For those of us who understand circumcision, it's not a comfortable thing to be done to a 99-year-old man. Let's be honest about it. And yet he submits to it. He doesn't argue, he doesn't fight, he doesn't doubt. He simply submits to the voice of Yahweh. Many years before that, Abraham had asked, where is my son that you have promised? But he, now, Abraham simply listens and he responds to God's command and promise. And he is circumcised for the sake of the covenant. And so it's never fully explained why it is that Abraham has to be circumcised, why that is the sign of the covenant. But as we look through Scripture and we consider the greater and grander narrative and the theology and the doctrines that are presented to us, we can see that there is import to this event. There is import to this rite. The promise for a son. The son would come through the union of Abraham and his wife Sarah. And so it makes sense that circumcision would be a sign for that covenant. For it is a setting apart of that action before God to bring about that son that he had promised. <laughs> Circumcision itself becomes a mark of difference for all the children of Abraham. God gave to Abraham this mark and all of his sons are to bear it throughout their days. It distinguishes them from the rest of the world. It separates the Jewish people from the Gentile world. Now I'm not saying that there is no other culture that had circumcision at the time. But this circumcision was given for the express purpose of being the sign of the covenant that God had made with Abraham. And that sign is to be borne by his descendants, to be worn by them. It was such a radical thing that by the first century, Jewish men who were wanting to go to the gymnasium, the place where the Greeks would gather and have baths and wrestle and 
do their various things. The Jews were so embarrassed, the Jewish males were so embarrassed to go in there that they actually had prosthetics made that they would put on in order to hide the fact that they were circumcised because they were going amongst the Gentiles. And it was so looked down upon by the Gentile world that it was a strange thing <laughs> to do this. But it was a mark that separated. And so because it's a mark that separates, it was a mark of holiness upon the Jewish nation by God's ordering. It cut Israel from the world and it set them before God. They now belong to God and to no other. They were God's chosen people because he commanded that it be done. And by faith it was done in Abraham. That sign of righteousness, that sign of the faith of righteousness. The righteousness of faith. But it's also a sign of something greater, a greater circumcision that we hear about in Deuteronomy 12, 17. Circumcise your hearts and no longer be stubborn, Yahweh says. He says, you already bear this mark that sets you apart, that makes you one of my people, that makes you one of my children. Now be circumcised within in order that you might fully receive the work that my mark is pointing you to. The renewal of your whole being, the renewal of your whole self. The strange sign of circumcision points to the reality that our hearts must be cut off from who we are in and of ourselves. And lastly, regarding the purposes and the reasons for this sign, there is the shedding of blood. Scripture says without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. And though, so this sign of circumcision is a bloody sign of the covenant. It's a sign that blood must be spilled for forgiveness to be accomplished. All of the animal sacrifices throughout the Old Testament are a testament to that reality that blood must be spilled. And so every Israelite man, every Israelite woman, every Israelite child would see these sacrifices being done at the temple or at the tabernacle. And they would always remember that blood must be shed for salvation. Blood must be shed for the forgiveness of God to come upon us. So they see that with their eyes. But then for the Jewish males, they carry on their bodies the mark of circumcision. The mark that reminds them continually that the shedding of blood is necessary for the salvation to come. That they must look forward to one who will come and shed blood on behalf of the whole people for their blood shedding is not redemptive. It is but a sign that points them to the greater one who is to come. Their blood does not bring forgiveness to them. But as a reminder of that work of God that he himself would fulfill all of these grand promises. That he is making them a great nation and that through them he will bless the whole world and in blessing the world he will bring about the forgiveness of sins. And so that circumcision of the foreskin becomes a continual reminder of the death to sin that was called for. The death to sin that God commanded his people to undergo. And that ultimately death, that the ultimate death that would be accomplished by God, it points to that ultimate death that will remove sin that they were dying from. It would fully remove sin from the the people of God, according to the covenant of Abraham. It was a continual reminder of the work that still needed to be done, of God accomplishing his promise. It was required to be a child of Abraham, to be born of the house of Abraham. You had to be circumcised, and to not be circumcised, you would be cast out. You would be cut off from the people of God. 
But even more than that, how did God command it? It wasn't only to Abraham and his son Ishmael. It wasn't only to the genetic lineage of Abraham, but it was to his whole household. Everyone who was found to be in relation to Abraham was to receive this sign. And so it's not only Abraham, but it's all of his servants who are not even related to him that become part of the covenant people of God. For they receive this sign of circumcision. The whole household, all who were circumcised according to the promise given to Abraham, became part of the children of God. They became part of Israel. They became children of the covenant before Yahweh. And so it wasn't the genetic lineage that made one a child of God. It was to be circumcised according to the covenant, to receive those promises so that no one could boast in that sign. It was a mark that God had claimed you, that he had made you his own, and that he was going to act out his promises upon you. To think merely of that outward sign as giving you some rights before God was to mistake that sign. The sign was one whose power was alone in the word that came from Yahweh. The reason that that sign, that mark, could make one a child of God was because Yahweh said it would. And so one was circumcised in the hopes of being a child of God and being brought into that covenant community and being raised in that covenant community. And that all who received that mark would become children of God. That is the Old Testament dispensation. All the families of earth would be blessed through Yahweh. They would be blessed by Yahweh through Abraham's family. And so faith was called forth. And that is just a brief history and ideas behind circumcision and so now we come to the very circumcision of Jesus himself and so it becomes absolutely necessary that he is circumcised because he is a man he is a human and yet ironically he's the one man who does not need it he does not need outward circumcision to be a child of God for he is the true son of God by nature he was already truly righteous in and of himself he didn't need a seal of righteousness upon him and yet he is still circumcised. He was truly circumcised of heart before he was ever circumcised outwardly. And yet he submitted to this rite upon the eighth day of his earthly life. And that eighth day is not an accident, I don't think. I think God had a purpose in declaring the eighth day to be the day of circumcision. After all, it was on the eighth day that Christ was raised from the dead, was he not? Yes, it is the first day of the week, and yet it is simultaneously the eighth day when it's viewed from the perspective of creation. For on the sixth day of that week, Jesus died. He did the great work that brings about salvation for the world by dying for the sins of the world. And on that seventh day, he rests in the grave. And then on that glorious eighth day, he rises from the dead. And thus the eighth day is, through Jesus' resurrection, the day of new creation. In that moment, New creation breaks forth in that glorious resurrection of Jesus as he comes out in his glorified estate. You might say that this very event of Jesus' resurrection was planned by the Father and it works its way back through all of history, even unto the moment of circumcision for Abraham and the promise of, his, of the covenant that on the eighth day the child shall be circumcised. And so looking at it from the New Testament, going back, circumcision is a picture of the new coming of the new creation coming that moment when the male child is brought into the covenant of abraham and thus into new life into new relation to god himself 
The child leaves the world of sin. He leaves the world of death, so to speak, and he enters into a new relation with the Father himself. He is ripped out of that world by circumcision on the eighth day and enters into a kind of new, primordial new creation, awaiting the fullness of that new creation in the resurrection of Jesus. And so on that eighth day, Jesus was circumcised. But it's not for himself. It's much like his baptism was that we'll hear about next week. That his baptism was to fulfill all righteousness. And thus, in a way, that circumcision is also to fulfill all righteousness. Because it becomes the final necessary circumcision in creation. No one needs to be circumcised to be brought into right relation to the Father now. It's no longer necessary to enter into the covenant that God has put forth. By Jesus being circumcised, he completes the necessity of it in his own flesh, for he receives it without needing it. He didn't need it according to his very nature as the Son of God, but to fulfill the covenant, to fulfill the law, to bring an end to the necessity of that very mark, he undergoes it for us. And by undergoing it for us, we no longer need it. And yet, by his human nature, to be the Jewish Messiah, he does need it. But again, by doing it, he undoes it. He undoes this necessity, for he is the very seed that was promised by that first circumcision. He is the very offspring that was pointed to by Abraham's being set apart. He is the true offspring that comes into the world. Jesus is the one that circumcision was pointing to all along. He is the one that God's promises pointed to, to be the blessing to all the families of the world. He is circumcised because he is a Jewish male. But being the son of God and all that circumcision represents that bloody sign pointing to God fulfilling his promises means it comes to an end in Jesus. It is no longer needed or necessary. It does nothing to save. It does nothing to bring into covenant now. And as I said earlier, there was that picture of the shedding of blood. And here is a great important thing for Jesus being circumcised. He begins the work of his own shedding of blood. From that eighth day, he is circumcised, and in that circumcision, blood is let forth. He begins pouring out his blood for the salvation of the world by submitting to circumcision. That shedding of blood was always a reminder for all who came before Jesus <laughs> that it needed to be shed. And here Jesus is the one who brings about its fulfillment. He is the one who will shed his blood for the sins of the world. He will shed his blood to save, to bring salvation to all of creation. Even as an eight-day-old infant, he submits to this sign and begins shedding blood which will find its completion in his crucifixion. That calling that was placed on him from the very foundation of the world, for he is the Lamb of God who was slain before the foundation of the world. And so his very circumcision is that first step toward the completion of his work. He does it to incorporate his very humanity into the covenant of the chosen people of God. And by doing it, he shows that he is the promised one, the fulfillment of that covenant the goal of that covenant, the one who will bring about the old covenant's end by fulfilling it, not by destroying it, by accomplishing all that was necessary in that covenant. 
He is the one whose heart was already perfectly circumcised to begin with, and yet the one who will undergo circumcision in order to be placed under the law of God, under the law of the covenant. And by being under that law of the covenant, he can then be the one that the shedding of blood was meant for. He sheds his blood for the salvation of the world. And this points to us the very meaning of his name, Savior. On the fourth Sunday of Advent, I spent a lot of time talking about the meaning of the name of Jesus, that it means Savior. It means Yahweh is salvation. It means Yahweh will save. For that is what Jesus is. That is what he is doing. He is all of that. Savior. He is Yahweh who accomplishes salvation. He is Yahweh in the flesh come to bring salvation by pouring out and shedding his blood for the remissions of the sins of the world. He has no sins to be remitted. He has no burden of his own to bear, but he bears our burden and dies as we are supposed to so that we might not come under the condemnation that death represents. Our physical deaths are that result of sin, and they're simultaneously a sign of the great condemnation that we all deserve, of spiritual separation at the end. My physical death is but a shadow of the greater spiritual death that happens when forgiveness is not accomplished. But by Jesus' death in the flesh, he takes away my condemnation. By Jesus being Yahweh in the flesh and dying for my sins, for your sins, Yahweh takes my condemnation onto himself. And yes, physical death still awaits, most likely. But spiritual death is undone by the work of Christ. It is undone by the man who bears the name salvation. The one who came into this world to be under the very law that condemns me and you. That law that condemns us to spiritual death as a result of our sins. He takes sin and condemnation upon himself in his circumcision by identifying with the very work of God through Abraham. And like Abraham, he doesn't resist this sign being placed upon him. He accepts it and he receives it for my sake and for your sake. He was circumcised for us all. He endures and submits to it that he might be placed under the law that condemns. And by being under that law, fulfill all that is required. Fulfills the requirements and destroys the condemnation by being condemned himself. And being condemned himself removes it from us who come to him in faith. He removes it from us that we might be then changed by that work of salvation, by that death, by that resurrection and ascension. He carries his humanity into heaven itself, that humanity that endured condemnation before the Father, condemnation for sin. He takes it into the Father's presence that we might then be brought into the presence of God, that we would know God himself through Christ. And so there is no condemnation for us who are in Christ because Jesus has endured it for us. The one who is circumcised is the fulfillment of the very law which condemns all of humanity. And so he bears it. And all the shedding of blood that is put upon him is for us. He does this that we might now have the true circumcision. That circumcision of our hearts. That cutting away of the sin nature from us. 
the removal of it from us spiritually, that we might be in the right before God the Father through Jesus. So I take us back to remembering the traditional name of this Sunday, the circumcision of our Lord Jesus Christ. There is a great import to Jesus being circumcised. He does it on our behalf as a pointer to the shedding of blood for us to be the one who undoes that law, who fulfills that law, who thus then takes on the condemnation of sin for us in order that we would be renewed. And so with that slightly different name in the past in the traditional prayer books, in the older prayer books, there was a different prayer. It was a little different from our prayer. Our prayer is perfectly good, but I want us to hear this prayer as I conclude today. It has a sharpness to it that directs us to the work of Christ in, for us and in us. And I hope that it then spurs you on to greater works. And so let us pray. Almighty God, who madest thy son to be circumcised and obedient to the law for man, grant us the true circumcision of the Spirit, that our hearts and all our members, being mortified from all worldly and carnal lust, we may in all things obey thy blessed will. Through that same, thy Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.